Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray this morning we would know the encouragement of your word and that through its teaching uh, we would be strengthened to trust the Lord Jesus and to live the life he calls us to. And help me in your mercy to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Writing in yesterday's Australian on the move to legalise euthanasia in the Australian states, Paul Kelly said, Australia is turning into a global leader in cultural arrogance, thinking it can usurp God's role in human affairs without consequence. And he goes on to reflect on the inconsistencies and contradictions introduced into Australian public policy by relying on a secular rationalism where human desire determines the moral order. Now, Paul Kelly is not alone in thinking we live in a society that's determined to remove God from public life and enshrine human desire and reason as the ultimate guide, the ultimate source and judge of what's right and wrong. And whether secular rationalism rolls off our tongue or not, we do see the changes he's talking about. Right and wrong, at least in the area of sexual behaviour, is now determined increasingly by what people say is right for them or by what offends them. Abortion and euthanasia are enshrined in our state because the wishes of a conscious adult about their own life trump other long-standing moral concerns, undermine, for example, the sanctity of life that's been the foundation of our morality. And we're also noticing an increasing intolerance of alternate views, whether that's seen in cancelling people on social media or from speaking on university campuses if they, like J.K. Rowling, question and fail to support the latest attempt to bring justice to some perceived victim group like trans people, or seen in the portrayal of those who support marriage between a man and a woman as evil, oppressive, anti-human. These changes are not just out there in the media. They're actually seeping into our everyday life, whether it's in what our children are being taught at school about inclusion and the legitimacy of same-sex relationships or into the workplace where employees are expected to express their support by wearing purple, say, or putting a rainbow flag logo on their work email signature or even in the change in suppression legislation, in government intrusion into conversations we might have in our homes with trans or same-sex attracted young people. We live in a society that's placing its faith in another gospel, what Steve McAlpine's called in his book Being the Bad Guys, the gospel of expressive individualism, the idea that human flourishing, the good life, salvation, is found in maximising individual human choices and in people being free to and it's supported in expressing their desires. This is another gospel founded on and promoting the worship of other gods, the gods of human reason, human pleasure or human power, power expressed in being accountable for right and wrong only to oneself, in the freedom to be true to yourself. For followers of this other gospel, Steve says, Christians are increasingly the bad guys, seen as the enemies of human flourishing because of their commitment to God and his authority over life his authority to declare what is right and wrong and to hold us accountable to his standards. The bad guys, 
because we believe the life of human flourishing is found in trusting and following in Jesus, dying to self, not following self. Now, you might not put it together as Steve does, and I commend his book, and you might not use the words Paul Kelly does, but I think we all feel that change whether it's in worrying about exclusion at our workplace if we express what we believe or even worrying about losing our jobs if we don't support inclusion initiatives or in talking to our children about what their teacher is saying or the lifestyle she's living and having to think hard about how we teach them right and wrong without getting them into trouble when they repeat what they have learnt at home, at school or even in increasingly censoring what we say in private conversations because we are fearful of condemnation. We feel these changes. And in the face of these changes, we need encouragement to keep trusting and following our Lord Jesus and guidance about how to live in a society that's indifferent to or hostile to the Christian faith, how to keep loving our neighbours in that society in truth. Now, God's word is throughout its pages rich in resources for that encouragement and guidance. But one of the books that's full of encouragement and instruction about how to live in a pagan society is the ancient book of Daniel. And we're going to spend the next few weeks in Daniel before we return to Matthew. Now, what were Daniel's circumstances? Well, they weren't promising. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. So the story opens around about 605 BC, Babylon's the rising power and Nebuchadnezzar is the soon-to-be king of Babylon and he's just defeated the Egyptians and the remnants of the Assyrian Empire at the Battle of Carchemish. It would appear as part of the tidying up, he went and blockaded Jerusalem whose king Jehoiakim had been an Egyptian ally. Jehoiakim submitted, giving Nebuchadnezzar booty and hostages taken to be trained for the Babylonian civil service, taken to keep the empire that had subjugated them and in a few years would destroy Jerusalem running. Now, we read, verse 2, that the Lord handed over King Jehoiakim, but that's not how Daniel's Babylonian captors would see it. For them, the defeat of Jehoiakim was the defeat of Jehoiakim's God and the triumph of their gods, particularly Nebuchadnezzar's personal god, Marduk. And the Babylonians had proof of that triumph, the placing of some of the vessels from the temple of the Lord, serving utensils and bowls. The placing of those vessels into the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God was a way of saying that Marduk was so powerful and the Jewish God so weak that Marduk had plundered his house and taken booty. For the Babylonians, amongst whom Daniel would live, (coughs) the God of the Jews was a defeated vanquished God, without the power to do things, to determine outcomes in the world, vanquished by their idols. And isn't that the way our society increasingly sees the God of Christians? Whatever people might think and worship privately, the Christian God is seen as powerless, 
powerless to enact his judgments, so there's no need to do what he says, powerless to bring prosperity or create woes, so he can be safely ignored. He's been vanquished by, by, well, the myth goes vanquished by the power of human reason and our collective determination to do without him. Daniel comes into a society that thinks God's been vanquished, has no role to play in society. And in this society, Daniel faces straight away the seduction of privileged opportunity. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, (coughs) young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction, in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature, The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years and at the end of that time they were to attend the king. Daniel's had a pretty rough start, taken as a prisoner, a hostage from Jerusalem. But Daniel is an able young man selected for his ability, health and looks. And if he works hard at the Babylonian curriculum and passes the entrance exam conducted by the king himself, a secure place is open to him at the heart of power in serving the empire's administration. Daniel may start as a follower of a vanquished god from a people who are on the outside of Babylonian life, but there's a pathway for him to meaningful and important work, to security and power, to being on the inside. And all he has to do is immerse himself in the conqueror's learning and culture and that's not all bad. There is lots to learn and Daniel will. And the process is not too bad either. The king will support him through his time with food from his own stores. Daniel will experience how good life is in the royal service in being in the favour of this great king Nebuchadnezzar. And all the time Daniel is learning He can depend on the king where he works for the king, that this pagan king is the source of his continuing life and well-being. And our society offers us and our young people the same seductive possibility, a life of privileged wealth and power. For the secular West is both wealthy and powerful if we will immerse ourselves in its culture, in its worldview, and come to depend on it for our provision, for our security and meaning. And like the learning of the Babylonians, it's not all bad. On the contrary, there is so much useful to learn. But all the time there is the message, like the message being given to Daniel, that security and belonging, a place in the place of power, is found in acceptance of its view of the world and dependence on that power and only that power For like Daniel's God, they say the Christian God is vanquished. So there is no other power, nothing else that can sustain our flourishing but the secular West and its idols. We face, like Daniel, every day the seduction of privileged opportunity. And to complete Daniel and his friends' re-socialisation as willing servants of the empire, they're now given new names by their conquerors, by their benevolent masters. Verse 7, the chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael and Abednego to Azariah. Now with this change of name, 
uh, a change of name, the old identity which was characterised by loyalty to the Lord, the God of Israel, is to be stripped away and replaced with loyalty to Babylon's idols and a recognition that their past life has gone. See, look at the names. Daniel, God is my judge. Changed to Belteshazzar, lady, and it's Belette, the wife of the god Del. Bel, protect the king. Oh, Azariah, Yah has helped. That is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now Abednego, the servant of Nabu, a play on the name of one of Babylonian's gods. Oh, Hananiah and Mishael have names that had mentioned God, but now humiliate them, remind them that they're a conquered people. With this name change, the exclusion of the Lord from their lives is complete. Their identity now is to be found in the service of the king and his gods and dependence on the king and his gods for their life and their progress in life. Identity, of course, and how we address people are hot topics in our society too. Some of you may be in workplaces where you've been asked what pronoun you want to be addressed by, accompanied by the insistence that you address others by the pronoun you they want to be addressed by in the name of not offending anyone. But actually what this is saying is that the individual is now the source of their own identity, a claim that you are who you think yourself to be. Our society is seeking to draw us into a world where we accept that we give ourselves our fundamental identity, that it doesn't come from creation, from our biology as men and women. It doesn't come from relationship to those outside us, whether that's God or (coughs) our parents or others. No, it comes from within. But think of that. To demand the right to determine how others address you, how you're to be known, is actually to claim a royal power, a godlike power for ourselves. Like Daniel's society, our society claims the right to be the source of a new identity by empowering you to create your own. It tells you you can find your life by turning in on yourself, by reference only to your own desires. (coughs) It insists on this identity-giving power because it sees it as one of the great blessings of its gospel the gospel of expressive of individualism. And by this power, (coughs) it seeks to detach you and all others from your identity as God-given, from locating who you are in your creation as embodied people in a web of relationships, or locating your identity in salvation. (coughs) Our circumstances are like Daniel's. In fact, in the pressure of an idolatrous society, giving him his identity, claiming his loyalty, proclaiming (coughs) itself as the source of his life and the good life, the pressure on Daniel (coughs) is more immediate and powerful for him. See, he's a hostage. He has no way home, no other than life in the king's service. How will Daniel respond Will he accept his new identity? Will he accept that the Lord is vanquished so that he comes to rely on Nebuchadnezzar and his gods for life, for who he is? (coughs) Excuse me.
Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. Daniel's determined, you see, to resist, determined that he will not abandon his identity as one of the Lord's people. And the focus of his resistance is his determination that he would not defile himself with the king's food and the wine he drank. The issue with this food is defilement. Defilement comes from the language in the teaching of Leviticus. God had said in Leviticus that he was the holy God and his people should be holy, set apart for him, set apart by their loyalty to his instruction, his Torah given to Moses. Defilement is the action of becoming unholy, unclean, and so unable to continue amongst the Lord's people, unable to come to the Lord. To become defiled was to be excluded from the Lord's presence and his people. Now there's lots of discussion about why the king's food and wine would defile. Some have suggested it would be because notionally it had all been offered to Nebuchadnezzar's gods or that it could never be guaranteed to be blood-free, to be kosher. There are lots of suggestions. But the issue is not so much any particular feature of the food, whether it broke this or that particular law, Rather, it's the whole context. Eating and drinking would be to let himself be absorbed completely into the idolatrous pagan world, living as if he was dependent on the gift of this pagan king for life and flourishing, and so owing his loyalty to this idolatrous king. Daniel knew that partaking of the food of the king of Babylon would defile. And Daniel's determined to not let this happen, determined to remain one of the Lord's people even when all around think that Israel's God's finished. He's determined to show by what he does who is truly God. Now people wonder why Daniel expresses his determination to be the Lord's person in what he eats and drinks. Why didn't he object to the pagan curriculum he was taught or the name change? But what you're taught is, outside you and you can filter and critique it by what you know to be true. What people choose to call you is up to them and if you know who you are, it really doesn't trouble. But what you do, how you live, on whom you rely for your daily bread, that reveals what you truly believe. That will distinguish you from or absorb you into your pagan neighbours. Daniel wants to be the Lord's person and he is not embarrassed to be known as the Lord's person. And so Daniel's determined not to defile himself with the king's food and drink and he puts that conviction into action. He asks the chief eunuch for permission to be different and that takes a lot of courage to express dissatisfaction with what the king is providing and requiring. The consequences for those who displease the king, as the chief eunuch says, could be fatal. And when the chief eunuch indicates that he's reluctant to grant Daniel's request because it could imperil his own life if he was seen to not have taken care of those entrusted to him by the king, the king who might, for example, think that these men were looking less healthy because someone had given the lads inferior rations to profit by selling the king's good food on the black market, well... When the chief eunuch raises his objection, we come to see the reasonableness of true faith in the true God. So Daniel said to the guard, 
whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Please test your servants. For ten days let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. You see, Daniel doesn't carry on or threaten to go on strike. He's not going to insist that others endanger their lives for him. But he doesn't give up. He's respectful of the responsibilities of those put over him, of their accountability to the king, and so he proposes a test to his direct supervisor, a test that would assure them that they weren't putting themselves in danger by agreeing to Daniel's request. He asked for a diet of vegetables and water and an assessment of their condition after 10 days. Now, Daniel's choice of diet does not come from dietary conviction, a knowledge or belief that vegetables were healthier. The defiling power of the king's diet was the issue, not its healthiness. And we know Daniel didn't continue as a vegetarian. In Daniel 10, 3, as Daniel's mourning for three weeks, Daniel says, I didn't eat any rich food, no meat or wine entered my mouth, and I didn't put any oil on my body until the three weeks were over implying that he was eating meat before those three weeks and resumed eating meat after that time. Rather, this diet is chosen because not coming from what the king ate and drank, vegetables did not defile. In fact, it was as different from the king's food as it was possible to be. Water for wine, vegetables for the king's rich food for meat and fat, Daniel and his friends would be sustained not by some imitation of the king's diet but by its complete opposite. Their sustaining and health would actually be seen then to come from a completely different source. Well, the supervisor agreed and as we heard the test was passed with flying colours, a, a determination to rely on the Lord to remain his people, left Daniel and his friends looking healthier and better. They weren't losers from wanting to be loyal to the Lord. Now we're living in an increasingly contested age when the good of living faithful to the Lord is not self-evident to many. They have doubts about it and Daniel can be our model here. Like Daniel, if we believe that a certain course of action or requirement is inconsistent with being a loyal follower of Jesus, well, we should try and change it from the start. Raising the objection right at the beginning shows we're dealing shows that those we are dealing with that we disagree in principle with what's being asked of us, and it's not just something that later on we found out doesn't suit us. And like Daniel, if we want to be exempt from some general mandate or be able to work or speak consistent with our faith, we ought to be respectful of the responsibilities of those over us responsibilities to ensure a harmonious workplace, to carry out orders of their superiors or the policy of their department, say of health or education. We should not be expecting others, no matter how much they like us or get on with us, to be putting themselves at risk because of our convictions. It's always helpful, as Daniel did, to come with alternatives that allow them to discharge their responsibilities as well as let us live faithfully that there are, for example, other ways of addressing people respectfully than being compelled to use their preferred pronoun. Oh, and to show that we can be relied on to address them respectfully. 
And we should never be afraid of the assessment of the good of living God's way, especially in an age where our critics suggest that the Christian life is harmful for people. We should be able to show it's good in our own lives and in the lives of our families. And there is evidence. <coughs> John Dixon, for example, has an ex- episode of his Undeceptions podcast that asks whether Christianity is bad for your mental health and presents evidence for its beneficial effect with good and accessible references and the links there in the outline. And as well as that link, there's also a reference to Rebecca McLaughlin's Confronting Christianity, which looks at the evidence for the Christian faith's beneficial effect on life and happiness. It's good for us to know those resources so we can point people to them. Now, Daniel acted on his conviction. But Daniel needed courage and confidence in God because that action risks so much. So where did a young man coming from a defeated nation, living at the centre of pagan power, surrounded by the great wealth of empire, offered a place within its administration? Where did he get that courageous determination from? Now, we're not told a lot of Daniel's background and early training, but some things emerge as we go through the book. Firstly, we know he knew and believed what God had said in making a covenant with Israel. When he's praying in Daniel 9, Daniel prays this way, verse 11, All Israel has broken your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. The promised curse written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He has carried out his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing on us a disaster that is so great that nothing like what has been done to Jerusalem has ever been done under all of heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us. Daniel knew the law. He didn't learn the covenant in Babylon, but in Jerusalem before he was deported. Knowing and believing God's word meant that he saw Jehoiakim's defeat and Jerusalem's subsequent destruction as they were, not as evidence that the Lord was defeated, but as proof the Lord reigned and was fulfilling his word, doing through the rise and fall of empires exactly what he had said he would do. See, Daniel's confidence came through meditating on the law and the prophets, God's word from knowing God in his word. He knew the word and the truth of what it had taught, of what it taught, had been confirmed in his own hard experience. He knew that God was the creator, the God of the whole earth, who ruled in Babylon as much as in Jerusalem and who could save his people wherever they were. And we know not only did he know the word, we know his relationship with the Lord was not just a matter of head knowledge. In chapter 6 we read uh, when Daniel had learned that this document, a a document condemning him really, had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. See, Daniel sustained his faith by a real relationship with his God, a practice of prayer that spoke of his daily dependence on and hope in the Lord. Now, hopefully, parents, you're actually encouraged by that. 
See, Daniel's faith and the practices that sustained it that allowed him to persevere in facing both the seduction and oppression of a pagan society were established early on in his home. Now, we should work at the instruction of our children from the earliest while we can because no one knows what will befall them. It's faith in God's word that sustained by a habit in prayer that allowed Daniel to be different, to persevere in a pagan culture living faithfully to the Lord. And it's faith in God's word sustained by a habit of prayer that will allow us to live faithfully. And Daniel's faith, as we see, was indicated. The text makes plain the source of Daniel's prospering, doesn't it? People's dismissing of God does not make God any less God, any less active in his world, any less able to keep and provide for his people. Three times in this chapter it speaks of the Lord giving. The Lord gave King Jehoiakim of Judah over him. It's the same Hebrew verb in all of them. The Lord gave King Jehoiakim. The Lord rules the affairs of nations. His judgments are enacted on the page of history. Verse 9 God had given Daniel kindness and compassion for the chief eunuch. The Lord is active in the lives of individuals. He can turn the hearts of kings and their servants, of politicians and bosses, of principals and magistrates to look favourably upon his people. Oh, and God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. And the Lord's the source of our accomplishments as well. From him comes success in the public world, the world of the university, business, government. Relationship with the Lord who rules over all is the foundation of human prospering. You know, we've let God become small in our minds just because the world thinks he's excluded from our society and affairs. Even believers can start to think and act that way. We can start to think that it all depends on us and so we become thankless people who rely on our own schemes and plans. But Daniel knew the Lord ruled over all things, that nothing's too hard for him and that he can be trusted to fulfil his word in all circumstances. And so Daniel's plan in a world that despised God was to live to please the living God and to entrust his life and future into the Lord's hands by being faithful to him, and that should be our plan too. And the outcome? Well, it says the king interviewed them, and among all of them no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel and his friends are publicly vindicated. They found academic success. They prospered seeking first God's reign, his rule in their lives. Unknowingly, in his witness to their competence, Nebuchadnezzar, who claimed to have vanquished God, testified to the Lord's faithfulness. And the Lord's faithfulness is not a one-off Daniel 1 actually establishes the pattern of Daniel's life for the rest of his life, as the book will show. And it's Daniel, depending on the Lord, verse 21, who outlasts the whole Babylonian state. 
for all their power, for all their claim to be the source of security and prosperity, for all their claim to be able to give Daniel an abiding identity, it is Daniel, faithful to the Lord, who endures. Daniel, who in chapter 5 pronounces and witnesses the end of the Babylonian Empire. Daniel, who abides and as one of the people of the Lord, finishes chapter 12 with a hope of resurrection, an eternal identity. In trusting the Lord. But it's not just Daniel who's vindicated through Daniel's determination to be different in a pagan world, different by persevering as one of the Lord's people. Through faithful Daniel, the Lord vindicates himself, shows himself in the very heart of pagan power to be God, the one who's king, who rules over and judges kings and nations, who knows the future and brings it to pass. Oh, the Lord does that here in chapter 1. It's the one who trusts the vanquished God who prospers beyond his peers. The Lord shows in Daniel's life that he has in his hands success or failure in the real world, even in a society that chooses to believe that he has no power. And through Daniel, the Lord will bring us, we will see, even pagan kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, to confess that it is he, the Lord, who rules. Through Daniel's determination to be one of his holy people, the Lord will display his holiness, display his glory. And in this, Daniel does point us to Jesus and to our calling as followers of Jesus. You see, Jesus was determined to do God's will, wasn't he? To be his person. And the Lord Jesus maintained that determination in the face of the ultimate expression of human power, the power to kill, and in the face of the most extreme human attempt to vanquish God from his world by killing his son. Unlike Daniel, Jesus was not spared death. He did experience the dismissal of God in his own death, death for our sin. But in his faithfulness, the Lord Jesus was vindicated by God in God raising him from the dead to immortality, a life that outlasts all his oppressors. And in vindicating his faithful son, the father was also vindicating his own glory, the glory of his faithfulness, power and love, and that he alone, Father, Son and Spirit, has life in himself. Daniel points us to Jesus and he points us to and encourages us in our own calling as followers of Jesus in a world that is increasingly like Daniel's, a world that thinks God is vanquished, that claims to be the source of the life of human flourishing on its own without God and seeks to seduce us away from the Lord with its promises of power and prosperity, a world that would insist that we have our identity apart from God by repudiating God in favour of our own rule. You know, Daniel showed in his own life that those claims, the claims of idolaters, were lies. And in the life, death and triumphant resurrection of our Lord that Daniel points to, believers in Jesus know their lies too. You see, Jesus is killed, got rid of, out of the world, vanquished, but it doesn't work. He rises with all authority. The world can't get rid of its creator. And the Lord Jesus, the one risen with all authority, the authority to judge and forgive, 
has said that those who seek to save their lives, to find life in themselves, to be the source of their own prosperity and identity by rejecting him, will lose life. But those who lose their life for his sake and follow him will find it, will find life and an enduring identity as God's daughters and sons. And the Lord Jesus' word is true. The Lord is and the Lord reigns even where his people are dispossessed and despised or suspected and envied. And we see in Daniel 1 his people's calling, our calling as believers in Jesus, to have the courage to be different by being determined to live the holy life he commands in all we do. To have such confidence in the God who is the God of the whole world that we can actually be reasonable, considerate of the position of others, open to examination when we live differently and to not withdraw from the world but to participate participate in it, to participate in it openly as the Lord's person so that through the obedience of our faith the Lord will demonstrate that he is and he reigns and he can save even a world, even in a world that rejects him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that we would meditate on your word to Daniel and we would take encouragement from it. Our Father, we pray that we would see your faithfulness, that we would see again that you rule over all things, that you are living and active, you speak, you can be trusted, you do what you say. And trusting you, as you reveal yourself in both judgment and salvation, we would live for you by trusting your son Jesus and keeping on doing what he says, no matter how unfashionable or despised that is. We pray in your mercy through the work of your spirit in us, our lives would bring you glory through their faithful obedience just as Daniel's life brought others to confess that you are God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.